You're listening to the Doc Lounge Podcast. This is a place for candid healthcare conversations with physician recruitment industries, top executives, and thought leaders. This podcast is made possible by Pacific Companies, your trusted advisor in physician recruitment. My name is Summer Gilbert, and I am the Director of Marketing and Branding here at Pacific Companies. Today on Provider's Perspective, we're going to learn more about Dr. Andrew Bazakis' journey through medicine. Dr. Bazakis is a board-certified emergency medicine physician practicing in Saginaw, Michigan. So thank you guys for tuning in. Now let's learn more about Dr. Andrew Bazakis. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the Doc Lounge podcast today. Really appreciate it. Of course. So let's go back to the beginning. What made you want to go into medicine? So it's kind of, I describe it as it's kind of like the same way I met my wife. I was in college and I was looking for some kind of a major and I had to come up with something. And so I, I put down pre-med somewhere on some paperwork somewhere. Cause back when I went to college, stuff was on paper and hmm. You know, and because science seemed interesting and I generally liked people. And so I spent a little time with the curriculum. And, and then after I got some exposure to the practice of medicine. And then after a while, the next thing I knew I was in love and there was no turning back. And so it's kind of like how I met my wife. And she was kind of nice and, and interesting. And the next thing I know I was in love and there was no turning back. So, yeah. It's, it, I, yeah, so I fell in love with medicine pretty much much the same way. There were a few formative experiences, I think, Spending some time in the hospital uh, with some mentors was absolutely key because there's nothing like being there, as they say. In terms of intellectual stuff, I was really influenced by the writings of Oliver Sacks, um, who uh, was a uh, neurologist from Columbia and wrote some books for the lay press that really were really about neuroscience and how lesions in the brain and various other things uh, affected personality, how the brain works in regards to music. He wrote uh, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. He wrote Musicology. He wrote An Anthropologist on Mars and a lot of really just really neat stuff that really turned me on to neuroscience and the interface between the mind-body interface. So actually when I went to medical school, I thought I wanted to do either neurology or psychiatry. Um, and then uh, that probably goes into your next question. How did you end up doing emergency medicine? Yep. And it was similar to the same story I, I, I said about I said about my wife. I really, you know, I was exposed to emergency medicine um, by a fellow named Tom Tartar, who was on a, uh, a television special that tracked a bunch of Harvard medical students. He was a former Olympic weightlifter, and he happened to be training in Lansing, Michigan, where I was in medical school, and gave a talk and described his experience in emergency medicine. I thought, this is really kind of cool. Let me check this out. So I somehow found a way to hang out in the ER at Sparrow and Lansing for uh, on a couple of occasions. And, and I thought, wow, this is really cool. And I felt, and I kept my mind open during my clinical years, but there was just so much about it that I absolutely just fell in love with. And even though I still love neuroscience and my work in simulation actually allows for that to come full circle around Um, there were so many things about emergency medicine that really were just so captivating for me that once again, the next thing I knew I was in love and there was no turning back. So it sounds like you've had no regrets for choosing emergency medicine, but if you had to change your specialty right now, what would you go into? Sure. I mean, there's in, you know, I, I tell the medical students that specialty choice, it's kind of like getting married. (laughs) It is a long-term life impacting decision made in a short period of time with limited information. There's a great deal of uncertainty. And after the fact, it's very expensive to change your mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and there are maybe not one perfect choice, but it's more important to avoid maybe some choices that are very bad fits for you. Yeah. So find some, some of the fits that are good fits for you, maybe one that's the most optimal. And I actually have a whole talk I get to medical students about this, the various rubrics I give them to help them sort this out. But knowing that you're going to sort of carve out of that, you know, within that variability, something that works well for you. And mm-hmm. if you see a specialty later on that you think, God, that would have been really cool. It doesn't mean you made the wrong choice. It means you made a choice. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like when you get married and I'm married to the most wonderful woman 
in the world. She is just so fantastic. Um, does that mean that you don't run into somebody and think, wow, she's really neat. That would have been really cool. Yeah, that doesn't mean you made a wrong choice. You made a choice. Now, I think I made the optimal choice, but mm -hmm. you know, that's my bias. Um, but the, and specialty choice is much the same way. So are there other things that I could have done? Sure. I mean, emergency medicine, we really are true generalists. We mm -hmm. see anyone, anything, anytime. Um, and family practice has that about it too. They yeah. see anyone, anything, uh, the anytime thing. Well, if you count the hospital, yeah, that could very well be true. So I think that was the attractive thing about family practice medicine, but I really just loved acute care medicine so much. Yeah. Um, that hit me in that direction. Um, you know, I think in interventional cardiology, that would have been really fun too. You really get a chance to make an impact at, you know, a time that is really critical for the patient. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that attracted me to emergency medicine. You can make a huge difference at a critical moment and interventional cardiologists have that about their practice too. So that was very attractive to me about that. Yeah. Well, there was, so there were a couple of different things that you think, wow, that would have been kind of cool or this would have been kind of cool. Um, and you, and I really enjoyed just about every rotation I was on. Yeah. But you know, one of the places where I really found the best fit was in the emergency department. And so, um, are there regrets? Uh, I don't know about regrets. I mean, do you look back and you have thoughts? Sure. But man, I shouldn't have done this. No. Yeah. Other than the fleeting moment of, oh my God, what is this? Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> this is bad for me. It's, uh, it's two in the morning and I'm awake. Um, you yeah. know, but that's, but that's part of it. Right. Right. You have a, you have a, I have a, you have a baby. The same thing is going to happen to you. I have three wonderful kids. Were there times when they were little and they were up in the middle of the night? Yes. Um, but you know what? It's you embrace that because it is what it is. Yeah. Know? And it's and it's a joy to be able to do it. Yeah, absolutely. But what you say you like least about emergency medicine? Well, you know, emergency medicine does have a lot of great stuff about it. I mean, there's a breadth of practice. There's a certain amount of flexibility to it. Um, in terms of, you know, when you're on shift, you're on, when you're off, you're off, and you can make a difference at people's, in, in a critical moment in people's lives, and you get the first crack at the diagnosis, mm -hmm. um, which is really, which that's, that's also something that a lot of emergency physicians love about their work. But what are the risks to emergency medicine, right? What are some of the things that you, are just the realities of things? Well, shift work is both the upside and the downside. Right. The nice thing about shift work is when you're on, you're on. When you're off, you're, you're off. And when mm -hmm. I leave the emergency department, no one's paging me to return to the hospital. It's, it's one of those types of things. Even if I'm late after my shift is over, finishing things up, taking care of patient needs, finishing paperwork, whatever it is, when I'm done, I walk out, I get, in that, get to that parking lot, I get in my car and I leave. It would be a very rare event to get a call to return. Mm -hmm. So that part is nice. The downside of shift work is... We have a civilization that has a very reasonable expectation for healthcare 24 7, 365. Someone's yeah. got to be there in the evening, somebody's got to be there at night, someone's got to be there on the weekend, someone's got to be there on the holidays. So, in emergency medicine, you work nights, you work evenings, you work weekends, you work holidays. Your family will be doing holiday stuff and get together stuff when you are working or sleeping to recover. Um, and so, there are real considerations about that. It's one of the downsides to shift work. Yeah. Um, you're grocery shopping on Tuesday afternoon when much of the rest of the world is doing business hours and get out of the store a lot faster if that's important to you. So there's mm -hmm. really cool things like that. Um, you know, but you may be at work all night, Tuesday night. And I spent 16 years as a nocturnist working only night shifts. Mm -hmm. And so there is, you know, so there's upsides and downsides to it. So it, it is a very much a two-sided coin the other thing about emergency medicine that I encourage students to consider is what I call toxic exposures. There are both two types, physical toxic exposures and psychological toxic exposures. Physical toxic exposures, well, some of them are circadian rhythm disturbance, right? Because you're not going to have a regular job schedule. Typically, your circadian rhythm will likely undergo some disturbance. That is bad for you. Mm -hmm. It is very bad for your health. We would never recommend that to our patients but it is part and parcel of it. Um, is it better than being on call? I think so, uh, but some people might not agree. There are other specialties that you have more of a daytime sort of schedule. Emergency medicine is not one of those. You're also exposed to a lot of physical disease. Uh, the whole COVID-19 epidemic has high, high um, nurses, paramedics, EMTs, uh, 
our, all of our, our nursing staff, respiratory therapy, radiographers, all the folks in the front line are putting themselves at risk. But we also understand that that is part of what we signed up for. That is part of the risk that we take when these events occur. Mm-hmm. You're also exposed to more violence. It is not unusual at all for nursing and physician staff to suffer assault. Um, sometimes it is in the context of someone acting out behaviorally. Sometimes it's people who have issues with their mental health and they really have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and so there, there's some of that too. And, but, you know, but trauma is trauma. And so there's that risk as well. Exposure to, you know, disease, airborne, bloodborne, and generally you're using sharp objects such as needles to sew wounds, people get needle sticks, and there's all the things that go along with that. So that's one of the things that we, you know, take into account. There is exposure to physical toxins. There are also psychological toxins to be considered. People come to see us on the worst day of their life. Yep. Every shift you can expect to be exposed to suffering and disease and likely death. And seeing that much of that in such a concentrated form on a regular basis is not representative of most people's life in our society. So it is, you know, there's a certain amount of psychological um, strain that that can create. And what we do with that and be able to cope with that effectively is essential in emergency medicine for physicians, nurses, uh, paramedics. It's also true of, you know, firefighters and, and law enforcement, and all these other folks for whom because of where we interact with people in society, the realities of the human condition are not muted in any way. Yeah. Um, we need to develop a very strong sense of wellness to cope with this. Um, we also have a, a job where you are very high risk for litigation, that you can do your very best. You can be mm-hmm. extremely careful. There's not an ER doc I've ever met that does not really truly care about every patient they see, Um, but things are going to go wrong from time to time. There are things that are going to get missed. There are bad outcomes that are going to occur. And then when lawsuits are filed, that's a whole wellness issue in and of itself and being able to cope with that whole thing. Um, And then all the, you know, all the other issues of autonomy of practice is the other is the third thing to, to think of mm-hmm. the golden era of the physician having complete autonomy over their practice, the independent practitioner that is going away. Now that was never such a big deal in emergency medicine, but there were independent staffing groups who would contract with hospitals or systems. And while those still do exist, um, you know, those smaller groups are, are really giving way to larger mega groups because you know, that's the only type of structure that tends to be able to survive in the, in the current environment of expense and regulation. Yeah. And so that can be at the cost of a sense of autonomy of practice. Um, we, the documentation that's demanded, only th- those demands only go up and up and up over time. Um, the, that's just one example. Thank God we have scribes and other such uh, voice dictation, other such things to help us with that. Now, is that a reason not to do emergency medicine? None of those are reasons not to. But we have to be realistic that when we consider that, um, that we keep those things in mind, that we keep those, those, those factors in mind so we're not surprised, right? So like when you're looking at a spouse and their best friend tells them, you know, he's a great guy and all, but understand he struggles with A, B, and C, you know, you should know that signing up. Yep. Yep. And it's the same thing. Emergency medicine obviously has so many awesome things about it. I've been doing this for 23 years. I intend on doing it for many years more. So there's awful lot good about it more than there is a challenge, but we have to be realistic about the challenges too. And those are some of the risks. And I try to make sure the students, when they are rotating in the ER and they're considering emergency medicine as a specialty, that they're aware that so that they can make a mindful choice. Yeah, you got to be proactive with the information that you know about what you're going into. Then reactive, it's it's going to help you. Um, so talking about exposures, um, what are you seeing right now with COVID? Well, in my particular community, we have. Um, I gotta say, I'm I'm a covenant healthcare in Saginaw, and the and let's say Saginaw County has done an amazing job um, with preparing for this. We have had the distinct advantage, however, of 
seeing what happened with our colleagues on the East Coast and then in Detroit and then working its way north to Flint. And so by the time it got to us, um, we had had time to really get our ducks in a row and prepare. Our uh, emergency medicine and critical care staff is amazing. Um, our respiratory therapists are some of the best I've ever worked with. Um, our nurses are phenomenal. Our administrators have just, you know, pulled out all the stops. And they, we've really um, been able to absorb a lot of the shockwave uh, of this, mm -hmm. um, where the curve has been flattened out. We've never gotten to the point where we've needed a ventilator and not had one, which is the whole point of flattening the curve, um, is just to not overwhelm the healthcare system. And we have been able to be very successful in that into provision of protective equipment for staff and, you know, really pulling through all of this together. So I have to say, I'm, I'm very, very proud of what the job that my institution has been able to do. Yeah. Um, the state of Michigan has been hit reasonably hard. Um, my, my empathy goes out to anyone in leadership during a time like this. It's great uncertainty out there. Oh, yeah. And we're taking it all one day at a time. Yeah, well, I totally understand that. And I can't thank you guys enough for being on the front lines um, for us every day like you do. And I have a question for you regarding masks, because there's a big debate um, about, is it really doing anything to wear them all the time out in public? Um, what are your thoughts on this big mask debate? Sure, there's an off, I mean, there, the... The recommendations from any particular community, of course, vary from one community to the next. I think the thing that we would do best to look at as a guiding principle is to use some common sense, right? To, um, to be very patient and extend a great deal of grace to our fellow citizens. Um, you know, if people are wearing masks and want to keep a distance, then we, you know, we really should extend a great, uh, some grace to that. If folks maybe are not comfortable wearing masks for various reasons, um, you know, or maybe they you know have a hard time people with respiratory diseases of some sort, it's very hard for them. Um, you know, we can you know we we should also extend a certain amount of grace to those folks too, and maybe we have to keep a certain amount of distance. Um, and so I think a great deal of, of of grace and consideration and 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 kindness will go yeah. along way, right? and to allow common sense to be our guide more than fear. Mm -hmm. um, and there's reason for fear. There really is. Um, but if, when we take a moment and we step back and forgive the pun, take a deep breath. Um, and we, and we act in the principles of common sense and kindness, um, we'll probably make better decisions. Yeah, definitely. So circling back away from the COVID discussion, you are a husband and a father. How do you balance your time being a physician and a family man? Sure. And I'm very glad you asked that question because I don't like to look at, I, I'm not, I am not crazy about the whole, the whole illustration of balance. I really like to think of it more as, you're, it's more like an interwoven tapestry than it is one thing weigh, weighed against another. It's as if your work is one part of you and your life is the other part of you. And I don't know, and I think that's a bit dichotomous. And dichotomies are very helpful sometimes, but sometimes they can be a bit inaccurate. And, I, and, and it's my view that this is one of those times when it can be. Mm -hmm. Your two most precious resources are your time and your attention. And how those interweave between your work and, and the rest of, of the way you spend your time and attention, which people call their life, well, those are kind of interwoven together. Yeah. And I don't know that they're weighed one against another necessarily. Um, so, I mean, how do you, how do you interweave those um, in an optimal way? I think that that weave changes over time because life is not static. You know, when we are, when we are young and perhaps we are, um, you know, we don't have necessarily have a, a family of our own yet. And, and, and by that, I mean, we don't have a, a partner and children necessarily yet. You know, how that tapestry is woven may be different than when we, you know, have young children, maybe different than our children, our teenagers were grown. Mm -hmm. And so how those weave together. And so how do we do that? We really try to keep in mind what are our values and what are our priorities? What is the most important thing 
to us. And weaving that into our life, so to speak, life, quote unquote, and our work, quote, we're really those are much the same. And those values, I believe, should be integrated between those two. The values yeah. should be the same between those two because we are integrated human beings. Um, not that we don't have a work persona and a home persona of sorts, right? There is some, there is some truth to that. Um, but those integrated values should never change. Mm-hmm. And so integrating those two as to where you are based on what's important to you is, is very, I think that's where the heart of that is and helps to guide those decisions. When you understand uh, what Simon Sinek calls your why, right? Your purpose. Why are you doing what you do? Yep. Um, once you can articulate that and take that from the conscious, from the subconscious brain into the conscious brain, and you can look at it and use it as a measuring stick, then those decisions become an awful lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like for me, people are the most important thing on the planet, other human beings. Um, that's why I practice medicine. That's why I have my, you know, my marriage. That's why I have my children. That's why I engage with my neighbors the way I do. That's why I do everything I do because the most valuable thing to me is other people. Yeah. Um, And so there's, so, you know, how do you create that balance? I don't know that it's a balance so much as things that are interwoven together. Yeah. And when things seem, when that tapestry is just not being woven in a way that seems to to flow well, then we step back. We look at what's important to us. We look at our purpose. We look at our why. and And that's the chance to realign the decisions that we make to make those things aligned with those purposes and those values. Yeah. And I look at your why and beyond being a husband and a father and emergency medicine physician, you have your hands um, full in other special projects. Uh, Tell us more about those. Well, one of the other professional hats that I wear is I'm core faculty for our residency training program. And my area of, of, almost subspecialty or the area that I I really spend a lot of my time with is in high fidelity simulation as an educational tool for residents training to become emergency medicine specialists. And I think that's a really exciting thing because Mm -hmm. what it does is it allows some of the most intense opportunities for coaching and leadership development that exist in the medical training experience over the course of thirds. And what that has been able to do for the most um, deliberate and accelerated growth learning that our residents have been able to experience has really been phenomenal. I have seen uh, the capacity of my residents as resuscitationists and as leaders both in and out of the department just explode since this program has really taken off a few years ago. Um, I did not launch this program. I am standing on the shoulders of giants um, of those who came before me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but the platform itself is is incredibly powerful um, and edifying, and really um, bolsters um, the ability of the resident to grow an immense amount in a very brief period of time, um, with some really insightful and expert coaching opportunities in an environment that is uh, psychologically safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that's not to say it's comfortable. Growth is never comfortable, but it is psychologically safe because even if they make a mistake in the lab, the mannequin's fine. Right? Yeah. Um, the mannequin's fine. Um, so, and then we can break that down and we can find out where that came from and we can fix it. Yeah. And we can more, even more importantly, give the resident tools that they can use to repeat that process over time to grow themselves, to clean clinical mastery and every patient deserves a master clinician. I don't know a single physician that I've ever met who disagrees with that. Um, and every one of us yeah. um, would want to pursue clinical mastery. Just to interrupt really quickly, the mannequins that you guys use, I mean, is the technology on that just um, insane? I mean, to actually mimic health issues in, in our bodies is mind blowing to me. It's a whole other world. It, it really is. I mean, when you go to these uh, international simulation conferences and you see these vendors that are providing these, um, these mannequins that they offer uh, to, for sale, um, it, it's unbelievable how some of these can create such amazing fidelity. A lot of people are familiar 
um, with the Annie mannequin that we all used for CPR class, right? That was yep. sort of one of the beginner, um, beginning stage mannequins, right? We have gone so far beyond that now. I now work with a uh, pediatric mannequin, which is about the size of a six-year-old boy that will talk to you and track you with his eyes and his head movements around the room. Um, and it's, it's, and that fidelity is really important because it really helps to bring out a lot of those very visceral subconscious reactions that we have when interacting with patients and families. Mm -hmm. um, because that's something that really can't be taught in a textbook. And that art of medicine is so essential and so important um, that it's something that really is a, is a very rich opportunity that exists in that simulated environment. But yes, it is, it is a whole world of its own. I have great, great admiration and respect for the engineers that put these things together. They're not, and they, the people that put these together, uh, they are artists. They really are. Um, art is something that helps us bridge the gap between the known and the unknown. Mm -hmm. And really we look at these things and we think, how did that happen? That's yeah. amazing. And so it really helps to bridge that gap. Wow. Yeah. And continue on. Tell us more about your peer coaching. Yeah. So one of the things that I noticed in the course of medical training, you know, you, when you're a medical student and you're, you're going through your preclinicals, then you're in your rotations and you have, you know, various people observing you and providing you feedback and mentoring you and whatnot. And then you get into residency and you have an assigned advisor, but then your staff is, is, is supervising you and watching over you. And then you get done and you go off and get your, and maybe you do fellowship where there's some, some sort of supervision and guidance and mentoring. But once that residency and fellowship is done, you're kind of off on your own. Here you go. You're self-made. Go on your own. And then that process just comes to a grinding halt. And you're expelled. And you're, the thought is, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't need any more of that. You know, you're kind of on your own. And, and while there is a certain amount of truth to that, when you're finished with your training, um, have you attained really peak clinical mastery? I don't think so. That's true. You're at a point where you can really take charge of your own accelerated learning at that point. But one of the things that's missing is, the presence of real-time peer feedback in that environment. And several of my colleagues from, from various parts of the country have noticed this. And so there's an opportunity to provide some sort of peer mentoring um, from other physicians that, you know, you've been out of training for a while. And, and, in the, and in the academic research realm, this is much more popular. And not so much popular in the clinical realm, but you do see little islands of it that I would really like to see that expand but an ability to essentially have a peer coach is essentially a partner who is willing to think along with you. And when you have two minds sharing, thinking about a problem or a process or a research project or professional goals or whatever it may be, uh, two processes, two people thinking together and someone maybe observing from the outside, they can provide you insight that you're not going to come up with on your own. Um, I heard someone once say that a third party can tell you things about yourself in 10 minutes. It'll take you 40 years to figure out by yourself. And that's actually quite true. Um, you know, philosophers of the mind referred to this part of this as the first third person problem. You can never, the one person who can change what you do is the only person who can't see it. And that's mm -hmm. you. And yeah. that's, and, and, and athletes have been doing this forever. When we think about it, right. Um, you have elite golfers. Um, that have golf coaches. Tiger Woods has a golf coach, one of the best golfers in the world. He's got a golf coach. Um, Tom Brady can throw, a, can throw a football like nobody else. He's got a throwing coach. Um, Serena Williams, born in Saginaw. Uh, I had a little plug for Serena Williams. Yeah. There. A tennis coach. You, you think she can't play tennis? Of course she can play tennis. She's one of the best in the world. Um, because the athletes understand that to keep their game moving further and further into mastery, it's important to have that third-party feedback. Now, do we really think that Serena Williams' tennis coach can beat her in a tennis game? Probably not. Yeah. Do we think that, that Tiger Woods' golf coach can beat him on the golf course? Doubt it. Um, but they can provide something that those particular elite athletes can't. Mm -hmm. And so in the athletic world, um, in the music world, um, in, in, in many of these other places, the idea of third-party feedback in terms of active coaching has been used 
um, quite extensively to help these folks develop mastery on a world-class level. Why should that not be brought into the medical world to mm -hmm. help us continue to accelerate our clinical mastery to a world-class level? Patients deserve that. Yeah. And so that's something that I'm very passionate about. And it's already been built. We just need to apply it in the medical world. And it's already being done in the research world mm -hmm. um, because that's a place where folks are open to these new ideas. Um, they tend to be early adopters uh, in the research world. And I think it's a matter of time. I hope and pray it's a matter of time before that's adopted in the clinical world because I think great things can happen. And it also appears that those experiences can also enhance physician wellness, promote resilience, and decrease rates of burnout mm -hmm. in addition to promoting clinical mastery. It yeah. reinvigorates the enthusiasm of practice from those that I've talked to that have done it. So that's something that I think is a really great thing that we can hopefully look forward to in the years to come. Yeah, I love this idea. And when you first talked about it, I was thinking you were, this is for students, but it doesn't matter what level um, of a physician you are. If you've been, you know, working for 30 years, a second pair of eyes is priceless. For thousands of years, um, learning the art of medicine was a mentorship, right? We read Hippocrates. Um, you know, I always joke that one of the reasons why the original oath of Hippocrates isn't used in medical schools is because there's an admonition there not to charge the students. Uh, you know, the yeah. medical tuition scheme would then go completely under. Uh, so <laughs> I will then I will not charge my students for my for passing it along. Um, but but the point is that it's a um, it, it's designed to be a bit of a mentorship. You mm -hmm. can teach biochemistry in mass. You can teach physiology in mass. You can teach anatomy to some degree um, in mass. You cannot teach the art of medicine in mass. That is a that is a a small group, at least, if not a one-on-one -on -one mentoring interaction. It's for for folks who are parents, uh, you, you get this. It's one of those things like when with your kids, uh, you hear the phrase "more is caught than taught." Um, well, with much of the art of medicine, that is just as true. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that mentorship and that, that coaching and that feedback is really, really essential to really uh, growing physicians that, are, um, that have clarity of their purpose, that have mastery of their clinical craft, and that are resilient in their mm -hmm. practice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And speaking of mastering your craft as a physician, I mean, we're just talking about mannequins that can simulate human beings the fast growth of technologies um, happening right now is, you know, is amazing. It's awesome. But as a physician, how are you keeping up with it? Do you find it overwhelming? I mean, anything from, you know, new technologies to EMR systems, um, new methods. How do you personally keep up with this ever-changing medical industry? Sure. Technology is a tool, like any other tool, and it needs to be taken for what it is. Um, now, the in terms of the knowledge base, yes, there has been an explosion. Um, there is a fantastic uh, podcast out there called "The Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine." That's done by a fellow named Ken Milne. I've never met him. I've only I'm, mm -hmm. a, I'm a listener and a fan. Um, and one of the things that he has described is that um, in the last. 15, 20 years or so, or certainly when I was in, in medical school back in the 20th century, the what was called the knowledge translation window, that is the time when research is published to its, finds its way integrated into clinical practice, it's five to 10 years. Well, thanks to the internet and certainly social media, it's now down about six months, wow. maybe 12. So you can imagine how that accelerates that. And, and I can credit Ken with bringing that uh, bringing that to me, it totally blew my mind and gave me some, some perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so uh, that's one of those things that gives you a sense of how fast it's going. Now, emergency medicine, being true generalists, we see, we touch the first couple of hours of everything. That is only amplified. So keeping up on just the knowledge expansion, given the knowledge translation window, is a task in and of its own. Fortunately, we have been 
very, very much blessed with some superb technologies. There's a number of just fantastic podcasts out there. Um, there is actually a, a company um, out there that uh, EMRAP that produces probably some of the most impressive continuing medical education uh, that's the most easy to access and up to date. It's, it's phenomenal what these folks can do um, and how they have taken on this monstrous task and done it so extremely well. Mm -hmm. um, so there are people out there in the emergency medicine specialty that are leveraging that same technology that created that explosion uh, to address the needs of that explosion. Um, there are other things too that are very different than when I trained ultrasound and its use is just uh, a different thing. When I was a resident, no, almost nobody did ultrasound back at that time. Now, especially in the critical care type of scenario, it's like your stethoscope. Yeah. It, is, it becomes part of your physical exam. In the trauma bay, it becomes part of your physical exam. And my residents are amazing with ultrasound. These guys are running around with butterflies in their pockets and have an ultrasound literally in their pocket. And so not all of them, but there are some of them that are. And it's amazing what can be done with ultrasound and how that um, enhances some abilities to perform procedures more safely, how that enhances our diagnostics, especially in the critical care scenario. And, you know, and so that technology is fantastic. It does create uh, an opportunity and even a need to expand one's skill set. Um, but there are definite benefits that come with that. And so we, uh, we know that in emergency medicine, you're going to run hard and you're going to be, you know, putting in the time and, and work to keep up. But that's, um, that's, that's where it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a very much, it's an extinguishable skill set. If you step out of clinical practice for a year or more, certainly two, it's very, very hard to return because yeah. of that rapid expansion. So a lot of us really take very seriously keeping up. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that technology really is, is just super. The knowledge translation window shrinking has created a knowledge explosion, which is good and that we now know and understand things in ways that we never did even 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how we treat stroke, how we treat cardiac arrest. I mean, so many things that we do so much better than we, than we did even a decade ago because of that. And with that comes the challenge of keeping up. But I think the emergency medicine community has, and the folks at Hippo EM in particular, but, but many other folks that have done also some great work with, in the, uh, with podcasts and conferences and various other things. My God, just unbelievable, unbelievable production of resources to help the emergency physician do that. Yeah. Yeah. So we're already almost out of time. But this is a question that I usually always end a provider's perspective with because I love the variety of answers that I get to this question. What advice do you have for those physicians that are finishing school and entering the physician career world? Well, depending on where they are, right? If you have young folks that are doing their undergraduate training, uh, probably some of the best advice I could give them is spend some time in the healthcare arena. What we think of in our heads and what we see with our eyes when we're there can be different. And that's important to get a sense of what you're looking at. There are some folks that I went to undergraduate school who changed their mind partway through their training because they realized they really liked science, but medicine was not the way to pursue science that they thought it was. So it's really important to get that sense of that, that type of thing. And then if you are going to en engage in a healthcare career, there's all different kinds of uh, healthcare professions out there. So, I mean, there's, there's medical school, there's nursing school, there's PA school, there's, you know, there's respiratory therapists, there's uh, all, there's, you know, nurse anesthetists for, you know, folks who go through nursing school first, there's all kinds of different, different options and exploring those is really important. For those that are in medical school already and find themselves there, there are a few things that I recommend that they look at and sort of rubric questions they ask themselves to help with their decision. The first is, where do you like to spend your time? 
Do you like to spend your time in an office setting or on the wards or in the unit or maybe some kind of a hybrid in the ER or maybe even out in the field like pre-hospital physicians do or sports medicine docs? The operating room in particular, do you love being in the OR? Because mm-hmm. one of the decisions that we make, do I want to do, want to be a medical doctor or a surgical doctor? If you absolutely love the operating room, like one of my classmates who became a general surgeon uh, said, you know, I, it felt right. It was where, it felt like it was where I was supposed to be. And that's a subconscious mind feeding all kinds of things back into the consciousness. And for him, being a surgeon was absolutely the right decision. And so if you love being in the OR, that's a reason to be a surgeon. Um, if it's okay and it's neat, but it's not really just wow and all that, then that doesn't mean you shouldn't be a surgeon, but that's maybe a reason to consider, you know, more maybe medical specialties as well as surgical. Um, what kind of disease processes interest you? That's the other question I ask them. If you're the kind of person who just, you know, really is into like, you know, the development of, of people from, you know, birth into adulthood, you know, pediatrics could be your thing. Um, if you're the kind of person that, you know, really, um, you know, loves, you know, endocrinology and physiology and things like that, then maybe being an endocrinologist or, you know, maybe even nephrology is, is more your gig. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're somebody who likes all different kinds of things, family practice or emergency medicine or some other generalist specialty like that could be more uh, a good fit for you. How do you like to work with your hands? That's the, that's the third question because we all work with our hands in some way, shape or form. Um, if you're going to be an internist or a critical care physician or a neurologist, you need to have amazing physical exam skills. Sometimes it gets a little bit more particular, like the, the surgeon obviously has to have very particular mechanical skills in, in terms of performing a particular procedure. Orthopedists uh, in particular have to have some of the most intricate skills and putting together fractures um, in, that happen in bones that don't follow any particular pattern necessarily. They've got to figure it out and it's got to work. Um, so how do you like to work with your hands? The fourth question is, where does my personality fit? Emergency physicians, there's variance among us, of course, but they tend to be certain personalities that gravitate there. General surgeons tend to be a certain kind of personality. Pediatricians tend to be a certain type of personality. And where do I fit? Where do I find that, you know, this is, these, this is kind of my groove. These are my people. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, we got to be honest with ourselves. The people we spend time with, we become more like them. It's back to that spouse advice, right? Pick a spouse that you want to become more like them because you're going to spend around time like them. You're going to start yeah. using their expressions. You're going to start making the same faces. You know, you're going to become more like them. So pick yeah. somebody that you want to become more like. It's the same thing with a specialty. And one of the things that drew me to emergency medicine is the ER docs I had met in medical school were some of the coolest people I had ever run into. I ran into great people in all specialties. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were, they were not only really fantastic doctors, but really down to earth human beings. And they also, a lot of them had interests that were so well-developed outside of medicine. Mm -hmm. And that was part of the depth of their personality. And that drew me to emergency medicine. The other question that I tell people to ask themselves, medical students in particular, where did I have the most fun? This is really important. It's more important than people realize. Again, that's your subconscious brain talking to your conscious brain because you have spent a great deal of time and energy to pursue a profession. You have sacrificed a great deal. You have a mortgage without a house or you owe Uncle Sam a lot of cash um, or time. Um, And your 20s are probably gone if you went straight through undergraduate school. Um, So you've made some serious sacrifices. It is absolutely reasonable to have a job that you really enjoy. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed a lot of my rotations. I had the most fun in the ER. And I think that should not be discounted. Yeah. If you have a job that you love to do, you're going to do it well. Yeah. Other thing, the final thing I tell them to consider is if you have people close to you, a spouse, siblings, your folks, um, what do they say about, how you seemed during various different rotations. Where did you seem the most happy? I had a classmate who was was married and had children when he went to medical school. And his wife told him, you know, you were home more during some other rotations, but when you were on your general surgery rotation, when you were home, you were so happy. You were so excited about your work. 
this really seems to be what you love. And when you're home, it was awesome. And it was like, it was never home, but you know, there were overnight calls and things like that involved. And he became mm-hmm. a journal surgeon as that, that feedback made a big difference to him because his wife obviously could see things about him and confirm things for him that, you know, he may have questioned about himself or maybe not even seen. Yeah. Um, and he's a fantastic general surgeon. So get the insight of people close to you because they know you, they see things about you. And we all should have those few people that are close to us, that short list of mm-hmm. people whose feedback we strongly consider. Yeah. Um, everybody else, but that short list we should, we should, yeah. we should think about. That's and so those great. people. We should ask. Mm-hmm. About it. So those are the rubrics I give to medical students. I actually have a whole talk I do on this for them. But those are the rubrics I give to medical students to ask themselves the answers to those questions, um, knowing that there's no perfect specialty choice. Um, it's important to know when a specialty choice is not a good fit for you, um, but to help find your way to a specialty choice that really would work for you and that you can create and carve something out of over the course of your life. Um, that will be a fulfilling career that you can serve your patients yeah. and your community, your community well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I feel like a lot of um, physicians, sometimes they get this financial blinder on because they have this big debt. And so they're looking at the specialties that pay the most. And they'll you know, consider that first before where their passion lies. Do you see truth in that? And I've seen, I've seen people fall into that trap and I, and it typically does not work out well when they do. Mm. Um, Now that having been said, I mean, finances are a real consideration. You've got student loans that will stay with you until either you're dead or they're paid because it's the way that that the law works around those. You can bankruptcy away just about everything else, but student loans, you really can't. So there, there is a real sense of pressure um, regarding that. And uh, one of the, things that I advise medical students to do is while that is a real consideration, truth be told, if you love what you do and you're good at what you do and you have decent financial advising and even any sense of, and you can really get a sense of some self financial self-discipline for those first few years, you're going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And so don't to, Consider that as part of the formula. Now, if you have two specialties that you're weighing out and they're really six and a half dozen and one pays immensely better than the other, okay, sure. I can see that might tip the balance in that direction. Um, I would imagine that to be an unusual situation, but I don't have any data, so I can't say for sure. Yeah. Um, but, but truth be told, if we love what we do and we get, then we're going to get really good at it. And when we get good at it, we will do fine. Yeah. Well, what great advice. Thank you so much for taking the time to share that and to share your journey. Um, I hope that those listening can, you know, gather something from your experience and uh, just be entertained by hearing your journey. And I think that's the kind of the beauty and the magic of these providers perspective episodes is not necessarily learning something new, but being able to relate to another physician's story. Um, and then obviously those residents and fellows or maybe upcoming uh, physicians listening um, to have some guidance and get some inspiration and be inspired by these podcasts. So that being said, Dr. Bazakas, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Doc Launch podcast. Super. Well, I really do appreciate the opportunity. I hope I can have been of some help and I will be sure to subscribe to your podcast. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Bye. Thank you to all our listeners. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes air, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And a big thank you to Pacific Companies. Without you guys, this podcast could not be possible. If you would like to be a guest, go to www.pacificcompanies.com. Thank you.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like a lot of um, physicians sometimes they get this financial blinder on because they have this big debt. And so they're looking at the specialties that pay the most. And they'll, you know, consider that first before where their passion lies. Do you see truth in that? 